Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. My name is Paul Harris and I am a past president of the City Club's Board of Directors and a proud City Club member. I am very pleased to introduce today's speaker, the president of the University of Chicago, Dr. Robert J. Zimmer. Over the last several years, the debate over free speech on college and university campuses has become a significant issue facing higher education. In 2014, Ann Nill, president and co-founder of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, addressed the City Club during a year when a number of high-profile speakers found their invitations to deliver commencement addresses retracted following student outcry. The issue certainly hasn't gone away. In fact, it has moved to the forefront on many college campuses, as sometimes violent protests and other disruptions have shut down speeches at Middlebury College, the University of California at Berkeley, and other colleges. Just a few weeks ago, Case Western Reserve University's Think Forum welcomed author and psychologist Jonathan Haidt, whose new book, written with Greg Lukanoff uh, of the foundation, I hope I didn't screw up his name, uh, for Individual Rights and in Education, is called The Coddling of the American Mind. His speech focused on the speech codes, trigger warnings, and safe spaces endemic to many college campuses. Mr. Height spoke to our community, our Cleveland community, about the need for colleges to train students to be anti-fragile, in his words. Of course, the controversies around free speech are not limited to college campuses. The First Amendment was a primary defense of white nationalist protesters at last year's so-called Unite the Ra Right Rally in Charlottesville. And the City Club continues to play a role in providing a venue for our community to productively engage with voices that some might seek to silence. Amidst this controversy, Dr. Zimmer has emerged as a leading voice advocating for freedom of speech and academic freedom on college and university campuses. Dr. Zimmer was named the 13th president of the University of Chicago in 2006. Prior to his appointment, he served on the faculty and administration in the field of mathematics for nearly two decades. He earned his bachelor's degree from Brandeis University and his doctorate in mathematics from Harvard University. In 2015, the University of Chicago released its report of the Committee on the Free, Free Speech of Expression, arguing that the, quote, fundamental commitment is to the principle that debate or deliberation may not be suppressed because the ideas put forth a thought by some or even by most members of the university community to be offensive, unwise, immoral, or wrongheaded, end quote. This report, now known as the Chicago Statement, has been adopted by 35 colleges and universities. In October 2017, the New York Times published an op-ed praising Dr. Zimmer's efforts and calling him the, quote, most essential voice in American academia today. That's pretty impressive. 
Earlier this year, a Wall Street Journal co-op, or op-ed co-op, about the University of Chicago's invitation to former Trump advisor Steve Bannon called the University of Chicago, quote, the free speech university. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage the president of the University of Chicago, Dr. Robert J. Zimmer. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. It is a great pleasure uh, for me to be here at the City Club of Cleveland and have the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, City C Club of Cleveland, of course, has a, a remarkable history, and I'm uh, very proud to uh, now join that history. Uh, my topic today is uh, free expression, open discourse, and intellectual challenges on university campuses and their relationship to education. Universities and colleges in our nation are at an important juncture in coping with this issue, a juncture in which each institution will define what it is, what it stands for, the nature of its education, how it is contributing to the future capabilities of its students, and collectively what that means for the country. This is therefore a big topic, and today I'd like to discuss four aspects of this general subject. First, what is free expression and open discourse about for universities and why is it important? Second, what is the actual state of free expression on university campuses? Third, what are the causes of where we are? And fourth, what can be done about our current situation if, as I do, you think something should be done? I'll spend some minutes on each one, and then I look forward to further discussion uh, through your questions. So let me begin with the first topic. What is free expression about, and why is it important? Uh, so of course, we're all familiar with the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. It states in part, Congress shall make no laws abridging the freedom of speech. So this simple yet profound statement has had an enormous impact in this country. It's facilitated, in particular, much of the important social change that the country has seen over the past half century, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, and more. However, the First Amendment is explicitly about what the government can or cannot do. As such, public universities, effectively government agencies, have some First Amendment obligations. Private colleges and universities, however, do not. The First Amendment says nothing about what private institutions can or cannot do with respect to speech. But while not about the First Amendment, universities, both private and public, do have an obligation, not connected to the First Amendment, but connected to their very mission. And that obligation is to educate students in the most empowering way and give them the capacity and the habits of mind and of action that will enable them to confront the complex challenges they will face in their future. At the same time, universities and their research mission have an obligation to their faculty to afford them an intellectual and research environment that will enable them to do their most original and impactful work. And it is exactly here 
in the environment for students' education and faculty research that the issue of free expression on university campuses is so important. I will explain why with a focus on education and the arguments about the research environment are similar. So education is a tool for both personal growth and enhancing students' capacity to face future challenges. For a student, this requires the acquisition of knowledge and their ability to produce certain work. But critically, it also demands the development of habits of mind, of ways of thinking about issues and problems that will inform action and be relevant to students for their entire lives. So what are these habits of mind and habits of action that students need to develop? Confronting new and different ideas, comfort with questioning others and oneself, recognition of one's own assumptions as well as those of others, understanding the power and the limitations of an argument, perceiving the centrality of context, culture, and history, recognizing legitimate competing interests, analyzing unintended consequences, knowing the difference between a wish and an argument, understanding the inevitability of complexity and the need in many cases to leave behind the temptation of simplicity, exposure to and grappling with unfamiliar modes of inquiry, synthesizing different perspectives, and being able to articulately and coherently advocate a position. All these are skills that students should acquire through their education, and that faculty need to impart in delivering that education. The single most important ingredient in this formidable task is intellectual challenge. This in turn only happens at the highest level in an environment of rigor, of questioning, and of free and open discourse. Such an environment is not uniformly comfortable for the participants, and it is not designed to be comfortable. In fact, to be effective, this environment of challenging one's assumptions inevitably creates discomfort, but a discomfort that is necessary for growth, understanding, and achievement. Thus, it is because of the very mission of universities that free expression and open discourse are intrinsic to their excellence. Now the perspective that I've just given on education is not just mine, but has been the basis of the University of Chicago approach to education since its inception in the late 19th century. Its importance has been articulated by its leaders and its faculty over this entire time. It is this perspective that has constantly put the University of Chicago in the forefront of defending free expression open discourse and academic freedom as it is today. Well, this has been embedded in the University of Chicago culture for over a century, about five years ago, as I watched other universities disinvite such individuals as Laura Bush, Henry Kissinger, Christine Lagarde, Condoleezza Rice, and Larry Summers, because a segment of their community didn't want people to hear them I believed we needed a clear statement that captured the long-standing Chicago view on free expression. So I appointed a faculty committee chaired by Professor Jeffrey Stone, 
a distinguished scholar of constitutional law to produce such a document. The University of Chicago statement reaffirming in the strongest possible terms our institutional commitment to open discourse and free expression has become known as the Chicago Principles, which I will return to in a few minutes. With this view of the importance of free expression in hand, let me turn to the second topic, namely the actual situation on many university campuses. So to provide some context, let me first say that the higher education system in the United States remains the strongest in the world. The variety of institutions, their level of autonomy, the healthy competition between them, and long-term bipartisan federal support for science, research, and education all contribute to the robustness of this system. However, there are a number of very serious challenges to this national higher education fabric and its quality. One is the question of access, cost, and student debt. Another is the dramatic and deeply destructive decrease in funding by most states for their public universities. Still another is related to immigration policies and whether the United States remains the most attractive destination for study by the most talented from around the world. And the final challenge that I want to mention is related to today's topic, namely an environment of decreased commitment to open discourse and free expression. And as I've described, an implicit decreased commitment to the excellence of education. How is this decreased commitment manifest? The most dramatic and public ways are the long list of disinvited speakers, including some I have mentioned already. Uh, other speakers being shouted down and not being allowed to speak, and faculty being called to task in a variety of ways for expressing controversial views. Sometimes violence has erupted because of the objections of a segment of a university community to a speaker's views or background. All of these, however, are just overt symptoms of more widespread problems. On some campuses, there is a tone of discourse ostracizing those with currently unpopular views. Faculty are concerned about bringing up certain topics and ideas for fear not of disagreement, but of being demonized. And some university administrators are actually stimulating an environment in which students' feelings of discomfort with ideas take precedence over the importance of actually discussing ideas. How students interact with each other is often a casualty of these damaging tendencies. Students should be learning from each other by working through and discussing different opinions, analyses, backgrounds, perspectives, and cultures. But the environment of demonization and ostracism of those with opposing views can choke the interstudent discourse vital to education. And to my mind, it is essential that this not be abetted by faculty and administration but that the latter worked very hard to combat it and create an environment for respectful, open discourse that allows for deep disagreements. My third topic is how did this happen? 
So I'm going to offer three contributing causes without claiming that these are the only inputs. So first, one should not be surprised that there are forces opposed to free expression and open discourse. In the end, most people don't really like free expression. They fully support and are deeply committed to free expression for people they agree with. But tolerating speech that you may find offensive, dumb, morally questionable, politically objectionable, producing discomfort, or religiously undesirable is not something everyone naturally embraces. We've seen this throughout history, and we've seen it in this country with innumerable challenges to the First Amendment on many such grounds. Therefore, in promoting an environment of free expression, one is always working against a strong undercurrent that may rise and become visible at any moment. In other words, the first reason this is happening is that some people are trying to keep certain views unexpressed out of self-righteous moral or political indignation, an agenda driven by such moral or political views and comfort arrogating to themselves and those they, they agree with the right of speech while denying it to others. The second contributing cause is what I view as a deeply misguided response to genuine and appropriate concern about exclusion and the particular exclusionary history in the United States. It is very important that our country recognize the destructive history and still very present legacy of slavery and the deeply exclusionary history of racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, misogyny, anti-immigrant behavior, and more. Our country's made very significant strides in dealing with these issues, but there is much more to do, and one can never take for granted that we are moving uniformly in a positive direction. Universities around the country are certainly not immune from needing to deal with these issues, and it is important that they do so. One unfortunate response to this genuine need are calls to suppress views or speech, either by specific individuals or on certain topics or with certain perspectives that are deemed by some segment of the university community to go against efforts at inclusion. Without pretending to address every possible circumstance, I believe these efforts at suppression in the name of inclusion have been deeply misguided. In fact, I believe that inclusion requires recognition that all students need help in dealing with and being productive in an environment of open discourse, and that inclusion demands giving all students the best possible education that we can. To limit the quality of education for all students, including traditionally excluded groups, is not the inclusion we should be seeking. We need to trust that all students have the capacity to engage open discourse and intellectual challenge and be empowered by this for the rest of their lives. That is the inclusion that we want. The third contributing effect is the privileging of feelings. I think we all recognize that parenting, and in some cases schooling, 
is much more focused on children's feelings than might have been the case a generation or two ago. Generally, this is a positive, particularly the extent that it helps to develop highly functioning adults who derive satisfaction from their relationships and their work and who can contribute to society beyond themselves. On the other hand, the ultimate goal is to produce adults. Privileging feelings to the extent that a child feels they are always entitled to feel good and comfortable and that the world should be organized around this is not helpful in this regard. And what we are seeing in some cases within high schools and universities is an expectation and then demands for such privileging and then the inappropriate acquiescence to such demands. There was recently an article in the news about the demand on the part of certain high school students to not have to make in-class presentations if it made them feel uncomfortable. One high school student was quoted as saying, no one should have to do anything that makes them feel uncomfortable. Now one wants to be forgiving, but in truth, the statement is both sad and completely divorced from reality. <laughs> but allowing this tone to take hold and fostering acquiescence to this perspective is another problem seeping into high schools and universities. So to summarize this section of causes, I've described the resistance to free expression because of strongly held moral or political views, a misguided approach to dealing with a genuine history of exclusionary behavior, and an excessive privileging of feelings beyond what can produce healthy adults. So finally, my fourth topic, what is to be done about this? So four years ago, uh, when I appointed the faculty committee that articulated the Chicago principles, and then subsequently when I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal raising the entire issue of free expression, there was so much nervousness and discomfort about the issue that in general universities weren't even talking about it or acknowledging that there was a problem. Over the past four years, at least partially in response, the subject has come to the fore and there is a great deal more discussion. Uh, almost 40 universities have now signed on to the Chicago principles or crafted their own version of them. This may sound significant, and it is, but given that there are over 2,000 four-year colleges or universities in this country, those expressing strong conviction about free expression and open discourse represent so far only about 2%. Of course, this is much better than when the University of Chicago stood all alone in this regard. But the silence of the remaining 98% is itself a powerful statement as to where we are. And silence and the lack of discourse about discourse is a deep problem. What is required is a visible and articulated commitment by both the leadership of universities and the faculty of universities to open discourse and the environment of intellectual challenge that comes with it. Without clear principles that are articulated, there can sometimes be no firm ground to stand on when dealing with a particular situation and responses become reactive rather than principle-based or at least can easily be seen as such. 
make progress the issue of open inquiry and intellectual challenge and its importance to the very core of what universities are about needs to be addressed by those responsible for the long-term capacity of universities to fulfill their education and research missions with distinction. And this resides with the faculty and leadership of universities, including presidents, provosts, deans, and the board. But students, of course, play a critical role as well. And here we see another issue of significance for addressing the issues we've been discussing today. Every year, hundreds of thousands of students leave high schools around the country and come to universities and colleges. The high schools they have come from have purposely prepared them, hopefully, to take mathematics courses in college, and they purposely prepared them to write history papers in college. High schools view this very concretely as their responsibility. But do they purposefully prepare their students for an environment of open discourse and the challenging of their own assumptions? Do they take this as their responsibility? Or are they being caught up in the same forces that are damaging the environment of open discourse in universities and not appropriately preparing students for the most empowering college education. I know that educating high school students is not the same as educating college students, just as educating lower and middle school students is not the same as educating high school students. And I am not an expert in high school education. However, I believe the question is an important one for high school educators and high school leaders to think about and to address. And I've been raising this question with them and encouraging their leadership on the matter. Finally, let me say what should not be done. And that is to overly politicize the problem. While it is true that right now, many of the most visible challenges to free expression come from a self-identified left. This has not always been the case and will not always be the case. Challenges to free expression can come, have come, and will come again from every part of the political spectrum. Well, of course it is important to always recognize and acknowledge where challenges are coming from at a particular moment. Supporting free expression and open discourse on university campuses is ultimately about the quality of education and research environment, not the political battles of the day. Making it primarily about today's politics undermines the commitment to free expression for the long run. In conclusion, let me emphasize the stakes. Higher education has demonstrated over and over again its capacity to change the lifelong opportunities of individuals the trajectory of families, and the nature of our society. It must continue to do this for reasons both human and societal. Being successful demands giving students the tools to confront complex problems, challenge assumptions, act with forethought, and work with people of very different views and perspectives. Creating a sanctuary for comfort is not fulfilling our responsibility. It is only through an environment of intellectual challenge 
and the free expression and open discourse that provides this challenge that we are fulfilling our obligations to students, their future, and the future of our society. Thank you very much. Today we are listening to a forum with Dr. Robert J. Zimmer, President of the University of Chicago. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are City Club Marketing and Outreach Coordinator Julia Wong and City Club Content Coordinator Bliss Davis. May we have the first question, please? Thank you. Um, I enjoyed your remarks, Dr. Zimmer. Uh, I'm curious, from the point of view of a university president, how do you feel that these principles of free expression should be enforced on the campus? That is, what do you do about members of the university community, whether they're students, faculty, or others, who, who would disrupt other people's speech or, or suppress it or, or shout them down? How, how should colleges deal with that? Yeah, so first, uh, there need to be clear policies about this. You only have clear policies if you know what your clear principles are. So the principles need to translate into policies, and the policies need to be discussed widely on campus, need to be talked about, and um, everybody needs to understand that uh, there are uh, consequences. I can give you one very nice example that happened uh, at our law school, as a matter of fact, where there um, there uh, was a protest that the, a number of law school students wanted to make, and they came and wanted very uh, clear demarcation of exactly what was within the policy and what was not within the policy. Uh, they organized a protest that was within the policy and articulated and posted a very clear statement as, and argument as to why this was in the university policy. So I thought that was uh, a very nice, nice example. It's exciting having you here. And my question is actually a follow-up to the previous question. Is what is the University of Chicago doing concretely to give the tools and capacity to faculty and staff to deal with civil discourse in an open forum? Yeah. So. Um, I would say that this is, um, you know, there are a few things that, uh, that we're uh, focused on. So uh, first, we rely a great deal uh, on, our, on our faculty. I mean, this is a big piece of, the, of our entire approach to education, our entire approach to academic freedom, is that we rely an enormous amount on our faculty of wanting to deliver an education along the lines that, that I described. Uh, we spend a lot of time now, more than we did in the past, explicitly talking to uh, students about this from the very beginning of the time that, uh, that they come to campus. Um, I would say, however, that uh, the question as to whether we have actually adequately developed interesting tools that, that people can work with is, is a fair question, and I think there are probably more things uh, that um, that can be done. But I think the most important thing is 
a, uh, a clarity, a reinforcing of, of the culture, and an explanation as to why it's important. Uh, this is not theology. I mean, this is not some abstract principle. This is about, for each student, having them understand why this environment is going to give them a more empowering education. And that is uh, what we need to be conveying. Hi, um, I was wondering, at what point do you draw the line between hate speech and free speech? And once you do draw those lines, how do you um, go about enforcing and um, reprimanding those who violate um, those boundaries? Yeah, so um, hate speech is a complicated concept. So rather than talk about hate speech, uh, I'd rather talk about uh, harassment, which is something that we don't accept. Uh, we don't accept uh, harassment, we don't ex uh, accept threats, and we have a very clear disciplinary process uh, involving that. Um, hate speech has, of course, been, uh, been a very problematic issue as to defining what it is, uh, and generally speaking, uh, we do not have any concrete policy about something called hate speech. Our policies are about things that are much more uh, concrete. Thank you, um, Dr. Zimmer. Um, I don't have a Twitter account, but I did write my question. Um, I'm troubled that so many people who self-identify as promoters of free speech, which is a concept rooted in the Enlightenment, are not protectors of evidence-based inquiry, also rooted in the Enlightenment. And I'm wondering what you think of that. Um, yeah, well, I think there are, um, uh, there are there are two issues, I think, that learning uh, how to recognize and use evidence of various sorts is very important. It's part of uh, what we do in, uh, in giving an education. Um, nevertheless, I, I don't think be because there are um, people who don't do that and who are uh, supporters right now of free speech when uh, the issue may not be their free speech, um, uh, may not be the um, uh, free speech of, um, uh, of, of people that they disagree with, that um, I, I would separate them as issues. I think they're just two separate things. And so uh, one has to allow the speech of those who are using evidence according to what you view as evidence, and you have to allow the speech of people who are using evidence that you don't like, and then you have to argue with them. But the idea that you're going to now set up some group that's going to say, well, you know what, we're going to be the, uh, the arbiters of uh, when somebody's defense of free speech is reasonable and based on evidence and when it isn't is, 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 not, uh, is not acceptable. So I view these two things as, as two separate issues. I was wondering how you go about who, having... Who's, who's speaking? Sorry, I'm over here. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, I was wondering how you go about having a conversation with someone who disagrees not just with what you're saying, but with your entire identity and history. Um, well, it can be difficult. 
Um, I mean, in truth, it can be difficult. And um, I think, um, you know, what is the conclusion that one draws from the fact that it is difficult and that it often arises out of the type of exclusionary histories that I've, that I've described? And I think it would be disingenuous to say that these difficulties uh, do not arise because they do arise. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, one has to think about, well, what is the, what, what is the response to this? I mean, is the response going to be that we're going to undermine uh, our principles because somebody's being a jerk and a serious jerk? Uh, are we going to say, you know what? We don't like people being total jerks, so we're actually going to limit the nature of discourse and set up the free speech committee as to what can be said on campus, uh, I think that's a mistake. So um, I think one needs to recognize that there are such people, that it creates difficulties, that one needs to have a capacity on campus to help people talk about this, recognize it, express it, talk to people who are doing that. Uh, it's not a matter of just ignoring it, but it's also not a matter of allowing people to be undermining your principles and, and the kind of education that you want to be delivering. Um, Dr. Zimmer, do your observations about the, 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 the challenges and the sources and the remedies apply in the same way, in your view, to public institutions, public universities, as they do to private universities, or do you observe any differences in how those are approached? Well, public universities do have First Amendment obligations. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on, on the First Amendment obligations of public uh, universities, uh, but I would say that I believe that on the, uh, on the question of what is the nature of the education and research environment, that in fact the principles are, are very much the same. Um, so. I, I, public universities, you know, in a real way, have been um, uh, the backbone of the educational system in the country. 75% of the students in a higher educational environment now are in a public institution. So one can't really talk about the fabric of higher education in the United States without talking about the importance of, uh, of public institutions. And so I think the entire uh, way I've described uh, the educational environment applies equally, but again, public universities have other, other obligations on which I'm not an expert. I would just like to say that as a high school history teacher, we do a good job of getting them ready to write their research papers. Um, <laughs> But I think that we have a very, very big obligation as well to get these kids ready to be your students. So a quick question, is the University of Chicago model used at high schools and can it be implemented at the high school level? Well, this uh, honestly is, I think, a, a, a real question for high schools because I, uh, you know, there are developmental issues uh, from my point of view when students come into a college or a university, uh, yes, there are remaining developmental issues. Um, you can have developmental issues in your 60s. Um, but the, um, 
I, I do think that it being in college, it is time to say uh, you are now an intellectual adult, and that is how you are going to be experiencing this environment. And um, exactly what you do in high school that's identical or similar, I think, is um, something that high school leaders and high school teachers know better than I do. My, uh, my question is, though, to ask teachers and leaders in high schools to uh, just to reflect on, on this question exactly of what is it you do so that when people walk in on their first day of college, they are prepared to be undertaking an environment of, uh, of significantly more open discourse and intellectual challenge. And that's, that's the job for high school teachers and leaders. And I don't pretend to know how to do that. I'm not a high school educator. But I do know that it's an important question for them to think about. <clears throat> Dr. Zimmer, thank you for being here. And uh, your remarks are very interesting and illuminating. Uh, there's been, there have been studies done reflecting that the faculty of the top, I don't know, many uh, colleges and universities lean hard left, uh, are n notably Democrats or identify as Democrats or liberals, uh, and that and therefore the faculty at these institutions, I don't know about Chicago, but I know about a lot of other schools, some of which I'm familiar with, where the faculty are very much leaning left, very much taking the democratic perspective, and notwithstanding <coughs> your uh, identification of issues and prescriptions, isn't there a, an inevitable risk, given this strong tendency on the part of faculty, which is where the rubber hits the road with a lot of these issues at universities, uh, isn't there a, a, an issue or a, a possibility that there's an inherent sort of bias in the system that is impacting this process? And may that not be another causal agent in this phenomenon that you've discussed? Well, uh, yeah, so let me say two things about that. First, I think, um, you know, when you go back and you look at where, um, and sort of where the pressures to constrain speech have been, they've not always aligned with the political judgments of faculty. So I think there are, there are forces at play other than just sort of where, where the faculty are. And so I, I would very much hesitate to attribute too much explanatory power to that. Nevertheless, uh, it's certainly a fair question as to is it a contributing factor uh, or not. And um, I would say that what it does do, if you are in an environment in which uh, you are a faculty member and you are surrounded by people with a lot of similarity of views, that it's really incumbent upon you and the group to, to actually recognize what it is your assumptions are and how to be teaching in an environment in which those are a set of assumptions. Sort of a larger way of thinking about that, uh, just to take it out of sort of a concrete uh, 
American political uh, argument uh, is to ask, well, how do you think about uh, Chinese culture? So most people in the United States have a certain view of a kind of fundamental uh, attitude about uh, citizenship, about nation, about relation of individual to society, and so on. It's, uh, it's a Western tradition. Um, the history of China is a very different uh, view of that. Uh, how do you get people to be able to teach about China, to talk about China, in a, in a way that avoids an intrinsic, automatic criticism because they're different? And so that's a, that's a kind of question. I think when you go to that question, you see, well, can you do that? I think the answer is yes, but you have to be very self-conscious about your own assumptions of what you're bringing to the table, and I think it's possible to do, and I think it's always the responsibility of faculty to understand who they are, what their assumptions are, and that those in some way need to be dealt with in the way you talk about things. So if you're, in, if you're a Westerner talking about China and you have a very uh, particular positive view of the, of the Western tradition about individual, citizen, state, and so on. That doesn't have to be eliminated from a discussion about China, but it can't be uh, injected in such a way that it totally colors and makes it impossible for somebody to think about China in a way that's different than the way you may think about it. So it's a challenge, but it's, it, it's something one can deal with. Thank you. Many colleges, universities have cited the large uh, security costs uh, as a reason for disinviting certain speakers. That's a very practical matter. Is it something that should, should not come into play? Um, I think it should not come into play, uh, although uh, there are some cases in which uh, you have to recognize, you know, if you're invaded by an army, you have to do something different. Um, I think what is important, though, is if the security costs really get uh, unsupportable and it's possible for that to happen, uh, you need to find alternate ways of having people be able to speak. So right now, everybody has a telephone. Um, it's not ideal to have to deliver a speech essentially electronically to an audience, uh, but it's a lot better than being silenced. Uh, so I would say that universities have to figure out how to use technology in a different sort of way to prepare for these kinds of contingencies to keep the, uh, the costs of, uh, of, of security under control if they can. You know, all of that said, one needs to recognize that there are extreme circumstances in which um, you don't have, universities don't have full control of their environment. And, um, and, and that can be a problem. On the other hand, let me give you an, another example of how this can be used in a negative way and, and why I'm hesitant to embrace the, the whole issue as, as you phrased it. 
So I, I was talking to uh, one university president who, and I asked about their views, and uh, the answer I got was my first, my first concern is the safety of our students. And I said, well, I'm, of course you care about the safety of your students, but if I asked you what is your, uh, what is your strategy and what is your point of view about the nature of science that should be developed at your university? It's an important question for universities. The answer can't be my first concern is laboratory safety. Laboratory safety is an important thing. People can get hurt in a laboratory. That's a second order question than the question, what is your principle ar around this? Now you shut down labs because there are people not dealing with the safety and you have to fix them up. But it's clear what the principle is. The principle is scientific research is important. Universities have particular strategies and you want to do it. And you, safety becomes a feature of doing that, that well. And I would say the same thing about the security issue. It's not the first issue, and it can't be injected as being the first issue, but it's something you, you do have to figure out how to deal with. Hi, um, Hi. I was wondering, uh, how has the environment of free speech fostered at the University of Chicago created success in the classroom, and has it lent success to any one particular area of study? Well, what I'd say is, uh, now I know there are a number of University of Chicago alums here, so they can either contradict me or support me, as, uh, as is always the case for uh, University of Chicago. But I talk to a lot of alums, and almost to a person, independent of whether they've gone to the Booth School of Business, to the Divinity School, School of Social Service Administration, or to the Mathematics Department, wherever they've gone, that this sense of being an extraordinarily challenging uh, intellectual environment and being a, a kind of crucible for their intellectual development is uniformly felt. And when I say uniformly, I don't mean 100% because there's no statement one can make about the University of Chicago that's, that people will agree with 100%. But by and large, it is remarkable how much I hear this from people whose experience was across the university. So I would say that the kind of culture that exists at the university, which is uh, derivative of its uh, very particular history, and it's going back to its very founding, uh, reflects exactly this kind of intellectual challenge that I talked about, and the number of people who have said, this has empowered me for the rest of my life is, is very high. Was, that was a perfect lead-in to my question. So as an alumna, I know that the University of Chicago is known as the teacher of teachers, meaning that uh, alumni from the university are faculty members um, at universities across the country and the world, and wondered if you've been able to successfully enlist them um, in this effort in spreading it beyond 40 colleges and or if you're thinking about that, um, or if you've heard back from any of them about it? Uh, I've heard, uh, that's actually a really interesting idea. The answer is no, I haven't tried to do that, but I'm gonna think about it. <laughs> um, I hear from many faculty from around the country, not particularly University of Chicago alums, uh, and not all of them, some of them disagree with me. Um, 
And on the other hand, some of them are very happy that these principles are being not only upheld, but, but talked about. Um, and um, I, but I will take your, uh, your thoughts seriously. Thank you. Hello, I have a slightly different question. What does it have to do with the growing incivility and lack of tolerance in this society as expressed by Thomas Jefferson, i.e., I vehemently disagree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to disagree? Yeah, so, I mean, we certainly have uh, entered an environment of, uh, and, and this has been developing for quite some time. I mean, it's, it's easy to talk about it as something that just happened in the last two years, but it's not just the last two, it's been going on for some time, um, in which um, the, the demonizing of, of people who are disagreeing with you is, is becoming a, a common thing to do. There's, there's blame, there's demonization, there's not just the statement, I totally disagree with you, but I disagree with you, and because of the position you hold, you're a bad person. And that is not a very good environment for uh, discourse. It's not healthy for society. I think the way it affects universities is that this is the environment that students are growing up in. Uh, they hear it, and it becomes a kind of normal thing. Uh, it's an environment that faculty are living in. So I think the ambient environment makes what I've described on as taking place on some university campuses as much more normal. So I think this ambient environment has had a negative impact on universities because it allows for a viewing this as, well, what, what's wrong with this kind of uh, discourse and behavior? But I think there's plenty wrong with it. Um, a majority of students say that they prefer uh, diversity and inclusiveness over uh, free speech. How does Chica University of Chicago combat the uh, idea that di diversity and inclusiveness is separate from free speech? Yeah, so um, I think that uh, not only are they uh, not separate, but in truth, in a deep way, they're mutually reinforcing. So what, what does uh, diversity mean, particularly on a university campus where it, it's actually intrinsically important to having an environment of multiple perspectives to have a diverse collection of people there. I mean, the, the kinds of questions people ask uh, and what they're concerned about and what their perspectives are naturally and healthily depends on the kind of background that and their, their experiences. So, um, so to me, creating the kind of uh, of environment of intellectual challenges totally enhanced by, uh, by diversity and inclusion. And on the other hand, as I said, that the payback is that people get a, uh, an education in an environment of diversity and inclusion that's simply more powerful by acknowledging the, by acknowledging difference and not, uh, not pretending that it's okay to not talk about it.
Today at the City Club of Cleveland, we are listening to a forum with Dr. Robert J. Zimmer, president of the University of Chicago. Today's forum is sponsored by the law firm Jones Day. We have Lewis Chaitin and Jeffrey Ritz with us today from Jones Day, and we're very grateful for your support of the City Club. Today's forum is also the annual Richard W. and Patricia R. Pogue, Pogue Forum, made possible by a generous gift from Dick and Pat Pogue. We're delighted to have Dick and Pat with us today, and thank you for your longstanding support, your outstanding support of the City Club and its programming. The community partner for today's forum is the Education Law Association. We appreciate your partnership in promoting today's forum. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Baldwin Wallace University and the University of Chicago alumni. Lastly, we welcome students from Andrew Osborne Academy, Archbishop Hoban High School, Hathaway Brown, and Lutheran West High School. Student participation in City Club forums is provided by many foundations, including the William W. Or, I'm sorry, the William M. Weiss Foundation. We thank all of you for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's program. Thank you, Dr. Zimmer. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.